Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. All right, we're going to pick back up in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 this week. Really glad that you are here. And I was thinking about just a little earlier, uh, standing off to the side here, about how, you know, we, we are collectively the church, the embodiment of Christ, coming together into one, one body. And, uh, and I think about what Christ is doing in each one of us because we're on this, we're on this uh, you know, salvation isn't really linear. You know, there's ups and downs and there's growth cycles and there's abiding and there's different, different parts of our faith. And we're certainly not all at the same starting place. Uh, you know, we, we've some of, I mean, I've been a Christian now for a really long time and had the opportunity to, to lead many people to Christ. And, uh, and so we're not all, you know, and on the timeline of maturity. Uh, and, but yet when we come together, there's just something supernatural about our, our relationship together. And so there's a part of me that just thinks that, that, that if, if we are as individuals and as family units, coming together to create a, a wonderful visual demonstration of what Christ is doing in all of our lives, then, then the invitation into every relationship that we have or know ought to be to bring people into this union. Uh, yes, church is important, but, but there needs to be, there needs to be a commitment into the body that I'm a part of. All the church, everybody who is a follower of Christ is a part of one church, yes, but relationally, we belong to each other. And so I don't want to lose sight of the fact that just go to church anywhere and, you know, at any time and kind of like a buffet style. But there is something, the way God designed church is to belong to one, to belong to people. And I just feel like there ought to be a, a desire that, that when we think about loving our neighbors and loving our coworkers and and, and engaging in, in that world that we ought to be saying, hey, listen, I need to introduce you to the best people I know uh, and, and, and drawing people into these relationships. Uh, sadly, I think a lot of people go to church as, as consumers or as you know, observers, but not necessarily as engagers and as worshipers. And that's, that's really what I want for us. And by and large, I think that that's true. But I, I just want to give us permission to, to recognize each other for the blessing that each other is to us collectively. All right, so uh, while, while there is a hard shift that I want to acknowledge in Ephesians chapter 4, the shift goes from doctrinally to practically. And that's the difference between orthodoxy is the study of things that we believe. Uh, orthopraxy is the process by which we live those things out. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians is orthodoxy. It's why we believe, what God has done, what God is doing, how it all worked, the gifts of the Father, the gifts of the Son, the gift of the Spirit, the mystery of unity, the, all of these sorts of things that there's no division and how Jesus brings Gentiles and Jews into one body. 
All of these things are what we believe. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is how it looks in our everyday relationships. So finally, we're going to get to, well, yes, God revealed grace to us uh, systematically in a theology, but he also is calling us out of that to, to practically demonstrate it. Anybody can say they believe anything, but the things that we actually practice proves what we truly believe. And anybody can fake it for an hour and a half or two hours at church, but how we live at home is a really, indica- really good indication of what we're truly believing and how we're practicing it. So while the world is completely upside down, and it will continue to be, by the way, this is not new. What we're experiencing right now is not new. It may be new to us. It may be new to our generation. Some of it may even be new to our country. But it is not new to humanity because the world lives in an upside down system. There's always going to be wars or rumors of wars or division and fighting and all of those sorts of things are always going to take place. Much of the world has had to deal with epidemics and pandemics and and all of these sorts of things, systemic racism and whatever it is that you want to, whatever we're dealing with right now, the world's dealt with it before. Some of us are just having to deal with it for the very first time. But while the world is always going to be upside down, it's why God called Christians to live from the inside out. And I want us to understand that the things that we do is the proof of what we're truly committed to. And, and ultimately, it is the Lord who does the work. Yes, it is, it is we who give him permission, but he's the one who does the work. This means that in everyday relationships, not Sunday school teachers or, or at Bible college or at church on Sunday, that our lives look different and our vocabulary is different and our friendships are different, our hearts are different, our attitudes are different. But in everyday living, we look more and more like Jesus's life, like Jesus's heart, like Jesus's attitudes, because they have been truly planted inside of us. Now, if we're born-again believers, truly born-again believers, and I'm not trying to get you to question your faith, but every now and then we need to question our orthopraxy and make sure that it is lined up with our orthodoxy. It is so easy to say things and make confessions, but confessions are pretty empty. Proclamations are pretty empty if it's not followed by practical living. So it demonstrates, the life of Christ demonstrates externally, but it flows from us internally. So with our yes to Jesus begins a process of sanctification, a process of thinking, looking, loving, feeling more and more like Jesus. So the Spirit places Christ in us, but but there's also proof of that. We believe that by faith. Jesus is in us, and Christians know this. The the Word of God is clear that Christ is in us. It's easy to believe it. It's easy to say we believe it, but there's a proof that that's true. That's what Paul is wanting us to understand. So this morning, I want us to get really honest. You don't have to talk to your neighbor beside you. But get really honest and ask yourself this. Does my attitude toward my family, my attitude toward the guidance of my children, my behavior on the job, my temperament, 
behind the wheel, my faithfulness to God in small things, in moments, not days, my willingness to sacrifice, my words to and about others, my involvement in spiritual opportunities, even in my own church, does it reflect what Christ has done for me? Or have I simply settled for making a verbal commitment to escape hell and because it was the popular thing to do at the time that I did it, some, some settled for some drowsy television-soaked semi-devotion where there's little to no real difference between you and the world except, except a decision but not a commitment. I think a lot of people have made a decision to follow Christ but maybe not a commitment to follow him. So Paul is talking about all the things that God has done and, uh, and, and now it's how we can know for sure that it's occurring in our life. So now that, we, you know, now that we know the why and the what and the who and the when, we can focus on the how of grace. And so the how of grace is how it's demonstrated in and through our relationships. Does, it, does our faith impact our lives Again, not, not in us. How am I a beneficiary believing that by faith? And I think that's where a lot of people have lived their faith for generations, in fact, is I'm just believing what God has done in me, just believing what God has done in me. Well, here's how you don't have to believe what God has done in you anymore. Is you, can, you can look at your habits. You can listen to your words. You can examine your attitudes. These are great ways for us to be able to know if what I'm believing is is true. Is there transformation? And that's what I want to talk about. The first relationship that Paul talks to us about being impacted by grace is in us. He's already alluded to that quite a bit, but truly grace in you, grace through you, and then to the most difficult people. We're going to get to this in a few moments, but the world around us, and not just the world, like in your, in your realm of influence or your friend groups, but the most difficult people you know. How you deal with the most difficult people you know is a great revelation of grace. Then he moves from the people that are difficult to the church itself, from the church to the, the, the family, and from the family, you know, your, your spouse and uh, people that you work with. And the last chapter of Ephesians actually deals with how you deal with your enemies by grace. So, just as a real quick recap, in a sentence, remember this. Who you believe you are is everything. Learning your identity in Christ and drawing from that truth of believing what God says about you instead of believing what you feel about yourself is critical. Knowing your identity in Christ is everything. And so Paul teaches he, he teaches and he reminds that your faith cannot be on autopilot. It is not a decision that you make and a box that you check. It's, it's incredibly intentional on your part. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. 
I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, we've already talked about that prisoner. He is both a prisoner literally and also figuratively as the servant of the Lord. But I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I want to shoot over to Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. If you're taking notes, just jot that down. But in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, it says this. Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Now he's talking about this, this anguish of producing children, spiritually, of course. He says, Until Christ is formed in you. Until you have the form of Christ in you. Christ is formed in you. Paul's saying the same thing here as he said to the Ephesians, but he uses different words. He talks about our, our adoption by the Father. The Father wants us, Jesus qualifies us, and the Spirit seals us. But wait, there's more. Not only are we adopted by the Father, but we are also radically changed not just adopted where we might get his last name, but we are adopted and become genetic. We become immediately tied in to that nature. It's not just a, I mean, we're talking about a change at a DNA level. Yes, the Father has adopted you, and as soon as you say yes to that adoption that he has called for you to have, immediately there is a DNA change in us that is possible. If we only knew our identity, we'd know how to identify it. It's not just a, an identity, but it becomes a reality. The word that Paul uses is it's kind of a funny word it's hard to forget but it's morpho morpho right like like if you had some foo but you needed some more you would say give me some morpho that's right morpho it means form or nature it means makeup it means uh, who i am truly by by nature so it refers to that real inner essence, the, the real me. If the word was applied to the real you, it would say, this is my, my nature, my substance, my essence of who I am. Now, the word uh, meta in Greek means a change. So if we're going to talk about a change in nature, we would say metamorpho. That's where we get our word metamorphosis. It means to change completely. So when, when Jesus Christ saves you, he doesn't make you a better version of yourself. He doesn't just clean you up and give you a new start. He gives you a, a complete new identity. Everything that Jesus is, you can become. He places his DNA inside of you. And not just by faith, 
You can evaluate by your actions, by your attitudes, by your desires, by your restraint. So when we talk about, you know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we talk about that, that drastic rebellion uh, in the Garden. It was a mental decision first. It manifested as a physical act, and it had spiritual consequences. The exact same thing happens in opposite when we give our life to Christ. So when Jesus Christ comes into our life, there is a spiritual moment, and it impacts us mentally. Have this mind which is also in Christ Jesus by the uh, renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how do I know my mind is renewed? By physical acts. What I do with my life. So metamorphu means a complete changed nature. But not just to become anything else, but to become Christ-like. To be to act, to feel, to love with his love, his actions, his heart. Verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, listen to this. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, guess what? Morphu. He was in the form of God, the nature of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, the morphu. He shifted from the form of God, the nature of God, and he chose to put on the nature of a servant. And he walked in that nature, not born of man, but born of woman, so he didn't have a sin nature. And he walked perfectly, and it qualified him to make the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. So Jesus, who had the nature of God, put on the nature of sinless man and won for us the great victory. That he could take us, who have the nature of sinful man, and place within us the very nature of God. Being found in human form, nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So in this whole nature change that Jesus experienced, we find that one of the first things that he did in this nature was humility. He humbled himself. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this morphu is the word that is used to describe Jesus when Paul is explaining that Jesus didn't come to, into existence like, like we did that prior to his birth to Mary, he existed eternally. So God the Father is making an agreement with God the Son. And God the Son is going to satisfy the consequences of Adam's spiritual deprivation. And that in exchange for that, that that Jesus is going to provide the, the way, the Spirit will breathe the life 
into the believer, and we will be able to have not just adopted, but joint heirship with Jesus because it's his nature that is empowering our living. We're not just saved so that we can go to heaven. We're not just saved so that we can be free of sin's guilt and shame and penalty. We are saved so that we can walk out the life of Jesus in every relationship that we have. Revealing that grace that has been revealed to us. Not just believing it, living it. Now, that's really good theology, but it's not very great for our... uh, are living it out, our, our, our practical understanding, our orthopraxy. So Paul commands that our walk, our life, he uses that term too, is worthy of our calling. And remember, it is a calling. Remember, we talked about a few weeks ago and, and we clarified the predestination and election. God made it clear what kind of life that we are to live. Uh, we're tempted to try to live that kind of life without the Spirit, to, to, to live out the Christian life uh, in the flesh. And so we often hear people talk about you know, trying to do that. I should be more patient. I, sh- I need to learn to be more loving. I need to learn how to be more forgiving. And you can't learn to be those things because you're trying in your fallen nature to accomplish them. These are things that are byproducts of walking in the Spirit and living in the Spirit. Paul's not telling us this. Jesus isn't telling us this. Peter's not telling us this. John's not telling us this so that we can work harder to be more Christian. He's telling this so that we can know when we see it that it's of Christ. Paul's saying you can't can't live it out by willpower. It, It has to result... From a DNA change. So, therefore, walk worthy of that calling. There's only one calling, and that calling is here, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the one calling upon your life. And God called the human race to live it out. Some will say yes to that. But that's the calling that we have, is to walk like Jesus, and we as Christians need to walk worthy of that. He doesn't say be worthy because you've already received it, because Jesus was worthy. You know, I think about the same thing that Paul is talking about in Galatians with the fruit of the Spirit. You know, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Whose fruit is it? Is it something you manifest? Something that you need to do? No, these are, these are byproducts of the Spirit's work so that you'll know. But he just compared that with the works of the flesh. And he said, works of the flesh are these things. You know, liars, haters, you know, selfish, living unrestrained. These are, these are the works of the flesh. And it's not so... It's just so you can identify and know whose heart am I tapping into.
So there are some signs, I'm getting to it here, some signs that you are transformed at a DNA level. Remember one of the things that Paul gave us, I believe it was in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, when he says the mystery that is revealed to us is that God is reconciling all things into himself, uniting all, unifying all things into himself. That's what the Father is wanting to do, is to bring oneness into everything, into his body. So verse 3 tells us that the way to lead a life worthy of our calling is to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. How do I walk worthy? Here's how you walk worthy. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. That's how you do it. Maintain unity with the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit. Verse 2 tells us how to. How do you maintain the unity of the Spirit with the bonds of peace? With all lowliness, gentleness, humility, meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love. So before we get to the how, though, I think we need to make sure that we understand what the unity of the Spirit actually is. I think that's important for us to know because I don't think that it's common sense. Sometimes when we think about unity, we think about having all things in common, all things in agreement. We all have the same tastes in everything, the same preferences in everything. And if I find people that are just like me, that's where I want to be. But that is not, or I have to get defensive and argumentative to try to win people over to my preferences. And there's where we find unity. But that's not true. And in the body of Christ, he's called us to be brothers and sisters. But what most Christians do in the flesh is work really hard to find twins. So when we're talking about unity, we're not talking about becoming, finding people that are just like us and shooting off and starting our own group or shooting off and starting our own denomination. But it's learning what things are we to be united on? What are the things that the Spirit unites us on? Unfortunately, Paul tells us, Look at verse 11 through 13. We've not read that yet, but I'll show you a couple of those things. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry and the building of the body of Christ until we all, what? Attain to the unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So these are two things that Paul says in verse 13 for the building up the body of Christ, that's for our, you know, our, our, our relationships with one another. But until we attain the unity of the faith. So we're talking about faith in God, in Christ. We're talking about Christ himself. But I want you to notice two things, or two, one thing, two words. Verse 3 says that we should maintain the unity. Verse 13 tells us that we are to attain. Maintain means you have it, but you need to keep it up. Verse 13, attain means you need to possess it or acquire it. And this is not an accident. Paul's not just using different words to say the same thing. What Paul is saying is what Christ has done in verse 3 is he has given us full possession, but many Christians aren't possessing it. And we need to work diligently to maintain this unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace that Jesus Christ himself created. 
But when it comes into the local church, we need to work to attain what Christ has already done. It's two different positions of the same unity. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, Jesus has already brought us peace with his death, but he has brought peace between us and God. In verse 16, I think there it says that he is bringing hostility to an end. He takes hostility that we had and he replaces that with love. So while we have it, we have access to it, we may not possess it. So God did his part and has performed that. But sometimes we don't do our part to perform that. So then, here's what unity means according to Paul. Unity is agreeing about Jesus, agreeing about our faith, our orthodoxy, and agreeing about our love that replaced hostility. That's what agreement looks like. That's what unity looks like. That's what, it, that's what the Spirit performs in the body is an agreement about Jesus, agreement about our faith, and agreement about the way we live that faith out. Not what kind of songs we sing, not what kind of colors we prefer, not what kind of whatever. These are not where we find unity. Paul goes on to talk about there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And so he starts drilling down. We won't get into all of that today, but he starts drilling down to show us that, you know, all things are being united into himself. One, 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 one. And how we get so divided and the more divided we get over non-essential things, the harder it is to have unity. And if you don't have unity, Jesus gets lost. Love gets lost. Faith gets lost. So, now that we know what we're to attain, once we have it, we need to maintain it. Christ handed it to us. It's not broken. We just need to live out what Christ has called us to live out. We get together. When we get together, we should focus on Jesus. We should focus on what we believe. And we should work together to show the world what it looks like to believe and trust in Jesus. That's what we do. Everything else clouds the matter. So, I know that's a lot of words. I've said it multiple ways, different words. But here's how you can know for sure. So that's the theology of it. Then Paul gives us the proof. Here's the proof. Humility. So, Prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk worthy of a manner. Worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility. You think about Jesus without thinking about humility. You can't do it. It's so framed the character of our Savior from the beginning to the very end that it become a hallmark of who he is. I mean, think about Jesus born in a cow pen. 
lived a poor life, moved from home to home, city to city, table to table, never served in public office. In fact, he refused it. He routinely exercised restraint in the presence of pride. He washed the disciples' feet, including the betrayer. He submitted willingly to the humiliating torture and death on a cross. But that's Jesus, always, always considering other people first. And when you think about the, the people that were the down and outers, the people that, re, that were rejected by the world around them, that's who Jesus is sitting at a table with. People walk into the room, Jesus is constantly, always saying, how can I make that person a part of the room? How can I enjoy enjoying these people into each other? Jesus is a uniner. Jesus did never, ever, you talk about, think about all the things that Jesus taught. Jesus never made it about himself. He made it about the glory of the Father and the restoration of the person. He looks at us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus frequently, it's humility is missed on us because we're so arrogant, we're so proud. Nobody's going to tell us what to do or what to think. Independent, fiercely independent. I think Jesus frequently used the trusting disposition of a child because a child ultimately has no power. Doesn't even know that he doesn't have power. He's not considered great in the world, except maybe to their parents. He's not strong, not self-sufficient. The world doesn't write books about the accomplishment of children. And here's the deal. Here's the most important part. Children don't care. They don't care that the world's not about them. They don't expect it to be. They're content being under the authority of their parents or people that they can trust that loves them. They have no expectation to be the center of the world until we tell them they should be. Never even crosses their mind. Children completely trust their parents to supply all their needs. And in most cases, a child doesn't lay awake at night wondering if he's going to eat tomorrow. Children don't. They trust it's funny how children don't get nervous when they're in the stroller when a storm comes up because they know they're going to be taken care of. They don't have to worry about themselves. They complete, be completely dependent. And I think that's the part that Jesus wants to see in us. Say, man, I need to work on being more humble. <laughs> you know, Humility says, I don't have to have my way as long as Jesus has his. You know, the Lord is in control of all things. And whatever he wants, that's what I want. Humility says, I don't have to worry about me. I don't have to be concerned about me because I know that Jesus is. If the sky turns dark, it doesn't matter. I'm protected. I'm safe. Practically, we could say, I guess, humility is expressed not by insisting on your rights, not being easily offended, not holding grudges. But here's the thing. I don't want you to walk away saying, I should be more humble. Boy, I really should be more humble. Boy, I really need to be more 
I need to be less concerned about myself. I don't want you to do that. It's pointless. Because while you're thinking about it, you're thinking about yourself. Working on yourself. Hope you can see the problem with that. Now, you should not worry about having to learn to be humble. In fact, I would encourage you, don't concern yourself with learning how to be humble. Just walk worthy. Maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. Humility is a byproduct of that. That's how you'll know that you are maintaining and attaining the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. It will manifest itself as humble. But how do you know what humble looks like? How do you know what humility looks like? Humility and gentleness. This actually was a, when Paul wrote this, the primary use of this word, gentleness, was the term used to describe horses that had been broken. Their power and their strength are not changed, but their restraint in using it had changed. That's what gentleness, and other translations say meekness, actually means is restrained power. Gentleness under control. Jesus comes to mind. I think about when the mob came to arrest him in the garden. Jesus could have called legions of angels. In fact, I think they kind of suspected that he would do that, but he didn't. When Pilate sticking his finger in his face, Jesus just stood there silently. When his accusers perjured themselves and lied to the authorities, Jesus didn't defend himself. Jesus was actually even tempted to take himself down off the cross, which he could have done. But with meekness, lowliness, he didn't. Sometimes we see and think of Jesus as being this weak sissy hanging on the cross. Man, that's restrained power that could have done a thousand different things to circumvent his death. But his lowliness did not consider himself in humility. His lowliness considered the glory of the Father as it's going to be revealed in those who said yes to him. Restraint. Jesus didn't say no because he was weak. He said no because he was so strong. When you start thinking about the things in your life that you just keep, you just keep circling back to. You know, God's trying to grow you up, but you just keep circling back to it. When you know, when you know that you are growing in Christ is when you're able to restrain yourself. Oh, you listen, if you're not careful, you'll resort to willpower. And you will fail. How many ever used willpower on a diet and you fail? Or the first day of the year when you decide you're going to read through the Bible? Willpower. <clears throat> yeah, willpower is great for a moment, it's terrible for transformation. It doesn't work, it can't satisfy. Because the, the motivation of where it comes from is broken at its core. And that's your carnal nature. Your carnal nature cannot produce spirituality. 
So here's, you don't have to worry about being gentle. You don't have to worry about being meek. You don't have to worry about restraining your power. It is a byproduct of maintaining and attaining the, the, the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. That's how you can know. How you can know is that you're not thinking about yourself anymore. That's how you can know. Now, James chapter 3, verse 13 reminds us of this. Who is wise and understanding among you, should he show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness? Well, the first two maybe create a, you know, you got this lowliness or humility with gentleness combo. One produces, you know, one is produced by the other. But then there's a divider. There's a second part of this, and that's patience, with patience. So the first two actually occur in here. The other two is how they're manifested outwardly again, patience. Listen, if you want to test your humility and your gentleness, be around difficult people. That's a great way to know. Listen, when you're sitting at home with the people you love and you're watching the show you want, eating the food you want, anybody can be patient. You know, I've, I've noticed I've really been patient. Well, when have you been tested? Be around people that are not like you. That's how you'll know. When you don't get your way out in public, that's how you know. When people around you are incredibly needy and even more annoying, that's how you know how patient you are. You can't hold yourself up into your little people group. Protect yourself away from difficulty. Here's how you know. I'm going to engage the least of these. I'm going to engage the most needy human beings alive. I want to be a resource for people who are the most annoying people in the world. That's how you know if you're patient or not. Oh, and before you think, well, I'd never do that. It's exactly what, you think you're something? That's exactly what Jesus did. He came to die for the most annoying people ever created. He patiently endured. Willingly. You write people off. You wait because your humility you can wait on your father's timing, your father's direction, because your gentleness, because of your humility, you don't have to take control. I mean, listen, this is like medicine to me right now, and it does not taste good. This is patient. When you don't have to take control, when you don't have to get the credit. You trust that God is in control of his circumstances, and you can just be Jesus to the world around you. Jesus endured. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He endured hostility from sinners against himself. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Here's how you cannot grow weary and faint-hearted. Focus on Jesus. When you remember what Jesus has done for you, you don't have to worry about being more patient. Who I should be more patient. Sit on my hands. I'm going to bite my tongue. Yeah, until you have just enough and then you're going to explode because that's what your nature knows to do. It's the only thing it can do. But when you consider Jesus, when you focus on Jesus, when you attain, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace, how will I know patience is being produced in me? I don't have to produce it. 
Lastly, finally, bearing with one another. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. This literally in the Greek means putting up with people. You can put up with people. People don't get on your nerves. I'm going to borrow this quote. I don't remember who said it. Donette has used it a lot. Listen, people can't get on your nerves when they're on your your heart. When you have a burden for people. Yeah, I'm telling you. It's just weird how you can love instead of anger. But if you're only thinking about yourself, just know. I'm not beating you up. Just know that's not of God. That's not proof of transformation. That's all. Just recognize it. In Luke chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus said this, You unbelieving and rebellious generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Jesus did it. Jesus put up with people. When things weren't as he preferred, he put up with it. Humility, gentleness, patience. Listen, if, you don't, if you're not producing these three things, that fourth one's not going to be produced. Only a patient people. Well, gentleness with meekness. This person can produce the character that can be patient. Only a patient person can put up with people. This is why Paul said to the church at Corinth, bearing with one another in love means enduring other people's quirks and irritating habits and differences. It means coming to terms with the fact that there are just some people that are grumpy and critical and are not going to produce Christ-likeness in their life. And you know what? Love bears all things, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So, When you forbear those who get on your nerves, you stop thinking, that person bothers me. And you start telling yourself, this person has helped sanctify me. I'm so grateful for you. You're helping me become more and more like Jesus. Humility allows me to be gentle. Humility and gentleness allows me to be patient. Humility and gentleness with patience allows me to love everyone. And growing into Christ-likeness is a community project. God gave us the church and only the church to accomplish it. We see people today running everywhere. And they're out looking for growth. But they're trying to grow without a commitment to us, to one another. And that's where it occurs. That's why people say, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Yeah, you do. We draw a line in the sand. You do. Because Christ's likeness can't be produced in you when you are all by yourself out in the woods, out on the, out on the boat. Christ's likeness isn't being produced in you when you're always getting your way. That's why we have to restrain ourselves and bring ourselves into people we don't typically like to be around or may prefer different people. This is the greenhouse where that happens. This is why it's so important for us to Always be together every opportunity we have. That's why Paul told them to assemble regularly. Do not forsake getting together because it is everything. So God, when, when God wants to form our character that impacts our walk, he doesn't give us a to-do list. 
He puts us in a community with himself and then he reveals grace to us and then calls us to display Jesus's mind to fellow believers where the image of God is stamped onto our being. So this is the revelation of the grace of God in my life. How I treat people that are difficult, humility, meekness, patience, putting up with people. You ever put up with people? I love the emoji uh, when you're texting, when, when things are like, you know, when you say, okay, all right, yeah, okay. You know, some of you may be married or have family or children or you got close relationships in your life. And, you know, when you, when you, when you tolerate people and you're just going along, you might be tempted to roll your eyes. Bearing with one another. You might even say, okay. But just so in case you miss it, that's your flesh manifesting the bearing with one another. Eventually, you're going to demand your way. And if you don't get your way, you'll part ways. So Paul makes the very big caveat. Bearing with one another in love. Because you want to. Because you get to. Because it's revealing Jesus. Keeping the spirit and the bonds of peace. The unity. So I want to just, I want to encourage you this morning. I'm not asking you to produce lowliness, humility, gentleness, meekness, patience, long-suffering. I'm asking us for us to find agreement and bring other people into that agreement of who Jesus is, what our faith is, and how it's lived out in the world around us. That's what I'm asking us to do, is to walk in the Spirit and do not fulfill the works of the flesh. To be able to identify and to know for sure that I truly am walking with Jesus is because Jesus is being produced through me. Not because I've made some declaration, but, but there, is, there is obvious fruit displayed in my home, at my work, in my church, in my community. That's how you know. And that's what I want us to be honest with this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, I just ask that you would remind us today through your word, not through me. Remind us through your word what you're looking for. Remind us what we should be looking for. Help us to evaluate our, our temper. Help us to evaluate our rolling eyes. Help us to evaluate our critical spirit. Help us to evaluate our preferences when, when we don't get our way. Help us to evaluate the way we respond to difficult people. And, and, and Lord, help us to know in that moment whose strength we're dependent upon, whose DNA, whose form, whose image, who like, whose likeness we are uh, manifesting so that we can take that thought captive and drive it back to the cross so that we can walk in the Spirit, so that we can live in the Spirit and walk worthy of our calling that you have called us to. Lord, help us to be good representatives of your kingdom here and there. Help us to, we love you. We, we do love you. 
but I'm afraid we loved you with our minds, we've loved you with our hearts, but we're not loving you with our being. So Lord, today we, we ask, we, we repent as much as I can repent for us. I, I repent of having my own way. And Lord, I ask that you have your way. Help me to lean into the morphu of God and experience a metamorphu in my life, in our lives. And that's going to require some cutting off, some cutting some things out, some putting some new things on. But Lord, today, may we stake a flag in that commitment and may it fly so that the world can see you and us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me, please? This morning, I'm gonna ask for us just to spend a moment seeking the Lord. And yeah, I know that we don't have to pray, Lord, if I'm guilty of any of this, reveal it to me. Listen, let me just cut all through that. You're guilty of all this. I know that because there's no sin, but such is common to man. And I know what I struggle with. This isn't about, well, I'm you know, really glad he preached that because my spouse is sitting beside me or my kids are sitting beside me. I'm really glad they got to hear that. Now that's for every one of us. We all need to be reminded of this. You're in good company. We're all guilty of this. But everybody won't repent over it. Everybody won't recognize it. Everybody won't deal with it. So what I want us to do today is I want us to, to not just repent of it in our seat. I want us to have some conversations with people in our lives that maybe haven't seen the difference that we proclaim and say, hey, listen, this is what repentance looks like. It means sitting down with people that we have professed to and saying, you know what, I've been wrong. I've not been manifesting Christ in my life. It's easy to call you to an altar. We already know we're guilty. It's quite another thing to sit down with loved ones, friends, and say, I've recognized something that, I'll, that I'm praying will change. If you'll forgive me, maybe that's what this looks like. Let's just be one. Just bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's just pray and ask that the Lord would give us courage to know when, how, to whom we are to manifest Christ in us first. And as we practice with those that are closest, the those who have been most impacted that we would practice there and move outwardly. We begin to pay attention to the people we should pay attention to, that we would love those that are difficult. And that when the world sees the love that we have for one another, It'll draw them into relationship with the church, therefore Christ himself. Lord, we love you and I thank you so much for this time together today. And I pray your healing upon our life. I pray that we wouldn't walk around with guilt and shame any longer. That our attitudes have been brought to light. That our habits that have been formed by our physical, sinful nature. Lord, I pray that today they be broken. And I pray that we would walk worthy 
maintaining, attaining the spirit of unity and the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. And by the love that we have for one another, the world will know that the Father has sent the Son. Christ in us, the hope of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, happy 4th of July. Today is the day of prayer. And uh, rather than having a special meeting, I want us all to be aware of where we're at. So if we throw up a picture. I can't see it, so I'm going to get out of the way. Uh, my invisible laser. Uh, you'll notice, is there, a, is there a big picture of all the city? I want to take just a moment. Surely there is, right? Is there not? No? I thought there was. I'm sorry. So, you can see, you can see I-40, but I am so pleased with how red that map is when you can see all of it. But there is a huge deficit just north, not at North 40, but north of 40. Well, there's a deficit there too. But uh, all of these subdivisions all the way up to Shiloh, uh, you know, we're encouraging you to pray over your streets. Uh, and most have, have done that. But uh, we, we've got a lot of work to do up in that area. So if you're out and you're praying and you're walking and you're, you want to be intentional about that, I'm going, to, I'm going to make another statement. If you can't get out and walk, maybe it's too hot, maybe it's rainy, maybe you just had surgery, just drive slow. <laughs> just pray over the homes. That's the point. The point is not to be on foot. The point is to pray over homes. Not on streets, pray over homes. Look at the homes as you drive. And, uh, and let's, let's start covering that, that side of town too. Another side that's, that's not necessarily being neglected, but not necessarily getting the attention uh, that it needs is all of Skyline, that whole uh, hilltop, all of that area uh, has, has not been covered much. Uh, and then we got an area around the middle school there too. So uh, what we want to do every time that we have these is just kind of highlight some spots that we'd like to start filling up some, some red. Uh, and so let me, let me encourage you as you're, as you're getting out to, to make sure you're praying over those areas too. Um, and then and invite people into doing that with you. Encourage you to invite people to, to walk and pray with you. It will, it will change your life. It'll change the way you see your city. Um, so uh, today we want to, I want to send you out and you don't have to do that today. Just, we're just taking once a month time just to kind of remind you how important it is. We've been doing it now for, for a little over two months. And uh, man, it's incredible, the stories that we've already heard. So I want to just pray God's blessing over you as we do that. that you'll have opportunities. I want to start compiling a list of stories that we're hearing of interactions uh, as our people are praying. So make sure that you keep us updated. Uh, as you see God move. Once we're dismissed in prayer, uh, we have some, uh, some popsicles that we want to give you just as a, a quick pick-me-up on your way home. Celebrate the 4th. And uh, Lord, we just love you and we thank you so much for who you are and thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in the life of our church. We pray your blessing over us as we go that you would live through us. Yes, Lord, we celebrate for what you have done in us. But I pray that it's our steps that prove it to the world around us. It's our hearts that prove it. So Lord, I pray that you'd be one in us, that we'd be one in you, and um, reveal the glory of the Father. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.